I don't know if you've ever seen a show called The Repair Shop. I think I've talked about this before, but it is a British show that we really like, and it still goes on in England. I understand it might be one of the top daytime shows in England. But it is a, a, a show. Thank you so much, Robert. It is a show in which people come into this building with um, mementos and heirlooms and um, pieces that have been broken or damaged throughout the years, and they want it to be fixed. The repair shop is actually um, based in this, in this building that's a living museum in England, but it's full of tradespeople who are excellent at their job. They can repair paintings, and they can fix metal object or, or glass objects or ceramics or fabrics. They can fix anything. So all the people come in, and they have these mementos that are precious to them, and they all come with stories. They all come with stories, and people are coming in mourning over the fact that their item has been broken in some way, or damaged by weather, or some other thing. And there's sadness when they bring it. And the people receive it, and they say, yes, we think we can fix that, and they give it to the masters of whatever craft that would be needed to fix that object, and they, they, the show shows you how they do some of the restoration of these things. And then there's a point where they come back, and the item has been repaired, and it is under a blanket, so they can't, they just see the shape of it, and then at one moment they unveil it. And they pull the blanket back, and this item has been restored to its original condition. And sometimes what the people would say are even a better condition. Now, when they came in, that item was representative of memories that they had. And those memories were mournful because the item itself was damaged. When they come back in, the item has been completely restored, and there's joy. Their mourning has been turned into joyfulness. They might have cried tears of sorrow when they dropped it off, but they cry tears of joy when they bring it back because the restoration has been complete, and now their memories are reunited with the item as they remembered it from their past. Well, that is a beautiful picture of the spiritual restoration that goes on with us. When we come to Christ... We come to a Christ who has lived and died and raised again so that we would be restored. And the restoration is so much more grand than any physical restoration. But that's exactly the way the New Old Testament brings us these New Testament realities all the time, isn't it? There's a, there's a physical uh, representation of something that is spiritual. And we have seen this over and over in Isaiah. We have seen physical representations of land that has been, um, because the, the people have disobeyed, their land is overcome. And there are weeds instead of flowers. And there are animals that inhabit it instead of people. There are vineyards who are, that, are, that don't produce any fruit. And their fields are not producing any fruit. And all of that is part of the curse from God for the disobedience, but it is also emblematic of the curse that comes over us because of our sin. And though, though all the promises of restoration use that old covenant language, they are referring to the spiritual reality of Jesus overcoming our sin on our behalf, dying for our sin so that we would have life. And so it's the ultimate restoration. It's the ultimate mourning to joy, sorrow to rejoicing, all kinds of, of sorrow leading to gladness. And it is the ultimate picture of that. Well, we're in a section of Isaiah that has, has 
of all the passages in Isaiah that we've been overwhelmed with, chapter 60, 61, and 62 are the pinnacle. They are the, they are the highlight of where Isaiah has been leading because we have all of this, this picture before us because of the promises that Yahweh has made to carry out through his servant, his Messiah, Jesus Christ, so that he would redeem a people for himself. And this passage is right in the center of it, the center of the three now, what I want us to capture here this morning, what I want to capture you, is I want to reintroduce you to the joy of your salvation. See, our salvation, when we are saved, the Bible is replete with passages that tell us that we are now the joyful ones, that we have things to rejoice over because of the work of God in Christ on our behalf. And yet, if you're like me, you struggle with that joy. There are times you struggle with joy. The, the sorrow of the world, the, the, the anguish that goes on around us, the, the enemies of God that have the forward front stage, they're the main event going on. That can overwhelm us if we get our view of the world mixed up. So we have to remember that our salvation leads to joy and that it is knowing Christ that is what gives us joy inexpressible and full of glory. So what I want us to see this morning is the emphasis on restored joy. Because things that were broken are restored, and that leads to joy, rejoicing. Three or four times in our text, we are told that this is one of the primary um, themes of this text. Now, there's much in here. As Eric said, turned around and looked at me like, how are you preaching this all in one sermon? Well, here's why. This is one text. I hope when you, if you have your Bibles open right now to Isaiah 61, if you don't turn there, because I want you to see how this text is bracketed and how God um, has Isaiah write these words down. Right in the first line of Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, is upon me. And now look over at the next to the last line of verse 11. So... Adonai Yahweh will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. That bookends our passage. It's an inclusio. Everything in between there is on that same subject. So that's what I want us to look at today. The text has already been read, so I'm not going to have you stand in, and, as I read it again. But what I want you to have in your mind is that if you... Listen, there are two groups of people in this room right now, aren't there? There are those who have been saved by the work of Christ and those who have not. Those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and those who are under judgment by God. Both categories of people need to see the joy that comes with salvation. If you're already saved, you need to remember that your salvation leads to joy and joy overcomes all of our situations. Our situations may not be happy. It may not be just laughable situations, but joy is an inner it is an inner state in which God allows us to trust him even when the world looks crazy. Therefore, we can have joy because he is sovereign and everything he does is good. Everything. Even the wacky world that we live in today, he is in charge of. Nothing escapes his notice. So we can have the inner satisfaction that we know our God is in charge and we can be joyful even in the midst of sorrow. And the way we experience that most is when we do what God calls us to do, when we're obedient to him, when we are his envoys in the world. 
Now, if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, maybe you've heard about him, maybe, maybe you've heard about him forever, maybe until this very moment you would have said that you were saved. You still need to see the joy because everything in your life is a train wreck. Everything in your life is a mess. Everything in your life is about yourself instead of the glory of God, which means you're acting in opposition to the image of God within you. And so what you need to see is the joy that comes with the restoration of salvation so that it is what God might use this morning to draw you unto himself. So joy is at the front of what we want to see here. In these verses, in 61, 1 through 11, we are shown three testimonies about the work of the Messiah and his people. Three testimonies about the work of the Messiah in, in, in and his people. Now, I will grant you there could be about 10 sermons in this, but I think we would lose the focus if we don't take it as it's given to us in one chapter. So the first testimony, the Messiah testifies. And his testimony... Yahweh has anointed me with the Holy Spirit to do two things, to preach and to transform. To preach the good news of Yahweh's favor and judgment and to transform his people. Transform my people, that's his testimony. Look right there at the beginning. Chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit, and I hope your version has that capitalized, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Adonai Yahweh, the Lord God, both his, his powerful, uh, the name that represents his power and sovereignty and the name that represents his covenant faithfulness to his people, Yahweh, is upon me. Now this is the, this is the, these are the words of the Messiah, of the servant. This is what chapters 40 through the end of the book have us focused on, is the work of this servant. Now, some would say this is the fifth servant song. You know, we've already been through four. That fourth one being the, the, where all of them were pointing toward and, and ended up um, revealing little bits about the work of the Messiah and then ending up in chapter 52 into chapter 53 as that wonderful picture of how Jesus suffered and died in the place of his people. Now, this could easily be considered a fifth servant song because it is the servant giving testimony again, and it follows some of the same patterns as those. So I want you to just listen for, to what, or look at your text and see what we see here. The spirit of Adonai Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me. Now, don't, don't miss, lose track of the because there. The spirit of God has the Lord is a, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me. He has set me apart for service. It's using that language that we might think physically of anointing a priest for his duties, using oil and letting it drip over his head. It's setting apart for God, um, for his purposes and for his glory. But this is the ultimate setting aside. This is where God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, has sent his Son, the second person of the Trinity, into the world with a mission. And he has anointed him for that mission. He has empowered him, and he has given him the Holy Spirit so that he is empowered through the work of the Spirit. This is the first time we've seen this in Isaiah, is it? In 11, verses 1 and 2, chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, there shall come forth a root from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. This Holy Spirit, we've already been told, is, sits on this person, sits on this servant, this Messiah, so that he can carry out the work God has given him with wisdom and with power, with might, and knowing exactly what Yahweh wants him to do. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. We saw this as the second half of Isaiah opened up in chapter 40, just in that first servant song of chapter 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. I will bring forth justice to the nations. So as it's always been through Isaiah, this this messenger, this Messiah, this suffering servant is coming to bring Jew and Gentile from the farthest corners of the world, all people, from all people groups, he is going to bring them to himself through his son, through the Messiah. 48 verse 16, and now the Lord Yahweh has sent me, it's another testimony of the servant, and his spirit. And then finally, just in chapter 59, at the very end, that, right, the, the verses that set up 60, 61, and 62, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, says Yahweh, my spirit that is upon you, my servant, and my words that I have put in your mouth, my servant, shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says Yahweh, from this time forth and forevermore. And remember, those children are not our physical children, but the spiritual children that flow from the preaching of the gospel. And God says he will redeem them all. So we have a reminder of all these Isianic themes right at the beginning of this chapter because the Lord Yahweh has anointed me and it's the Spirit talking. Now what, what has he anointed him to do? Look at the, the third line in verse 1. To bring good news to the poor. Now poor there might be better translated afflicted. We, we want to think of poor, but we also, poor it, like monetarily, as we see um, some of the, some of the, the uh, chapters from Leviticus we'll look at in a moment, the year of Jubilee, it's including the poor physically, but this whole section is talking about a spiritual reality using physical terms. And I'll draw that out as we go through, but have that in your mind. These are spiritual realities being taught to us through the youth of physical um, terms and physical pictures. So the poor are the afflicted, the ones who are downtrodden, the ones who have no justice given to them, the ones who are poor, and if we think spiritually of why Jesus came, the ones who are poor and afflicted by their sin. That's what's in front of us, and he comes to bring good news to them. This is the gospel itself, right in Isaiah, the good news of Jesus Christ and his mission, to bring good news to the poor. Now look at the next line, he has sent me, so here is the, God has set his spirit upon the Messiah because Yahweh has anointed him. The purpose is to bring good news to the poor. And now we have the description of how this good news to the poor, the afflicted, is going to work itself out. Look at that fourth line there in verse 1. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim, proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And then in verse 2, we have another proclamation. To proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor and the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort 
all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, and what does he grant those who mourn in Zion? To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of faint praise. And he goes on with these blessings. So God has commissioned the Messiah to accomplish something for a group of people. And those, that group of people are, are brought to us as the afflicted, the brokenhearted, the captives, and those who are bound. If you look right there in the last phrase of verse 1, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, of the prison is not in the Hebrew text. I think it's probably what the imagery is meaning. It's just really to the opening of those who are bound. That's what's brought before us um, in, this, in this verse. So think physically what the people will understand. Physically what the people understand. The, especially the people who are coming out of captivity in Babylon. Remember, that's who this whole section of scripture is, is first focused on. It has meaning for the people in Isaiah's day as well because there are promises for what will happen in that day. But think of the people coming out of captivity. when They are the, they are the ones who are brokenhearted. They've been separated from their land, from their place of worship. They've been separated from everything that they knew about their life. They, they, they've been captives to the Babylonians. They've been in prison. They've been bound up because they have not been free to go home. And these are the, this is the picture that's being shown, not only physically to those people who are coming out of captivity, but that is just a small taste of what Christ does on behalf of his people for their sin, is it not? It's a small taste. It is a physical example of the spiritual reality. Because those of us, before we come to Christ, we are afflicted by our sin. We are bound up and, 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 and brokenhearted when we are being drawn to Christ. We are captive to our sin. It controls us. When, it, when, it, when our sin rises up in us, we have no way to fight that with any good end at all. We are bound up by our sin. And the Messiah is coming to set us free from all of those things. So that we are the ones now who are, we have been brokenhearted over our sin. Now that's what it takes to come to Christ, doesn't it? We have got to repent of our sin. We learned that earlier in chapter 59, setting up this whole section. Salvation comes to those who repent. Destruction comes to those who refuse to repent. So mourning over our sin, being brokenhearted over our sin, leads us to get the blessings of being bound up from that. We, our wounds are all bound up. We, we were captive to our sin, but now the proclamation to us is that we have liberty. We have freedom from that sin. We are bound up as if in a prison, and he has opened up those doors. Well, how does he do that? Verse 2. The proclamation still, this is the, the Messiah and his testimony, his, what he proclaims, the year of the Lord's favor. Now that, we've talked about this before, we've seen this a couple of times already um, in Isaiah, but I want you to turn, keep your fingers in Isaiah 61 and turn to Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25. We need to fully understand this very packed phrase here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Look at 25.8. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, that's what the weeks of years are, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month, 
On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor weep, reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from your undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the jubilee. And he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. And then he goes on to give examples. So this is a year, every 50 years, remember, no Israelite owned their land. They were stewards of their land. God owned the land. And every 50 years, God said, if you have to give up part of your land to sell for debts or that you've lost it in some sort of business deal, every 50th year, you will get all your land back because it's mine and I'm restoring things to what it should be. If you, were, if you hold the debt of someone else, you need to forgive that debt because I intend to restore things to what they should be. This year of Jubilee was a grand year of restoration back to where God set everything right and says, I want you to reset here. I want you to reboot everything and set it right. And notice what is right at the center of it. It is the Day of Atonement. It is the day that we learned about just 10 chapters before, nine chapters before in chapter 16 of Leviticus, where the high priest would do according to what Yahweh said in order to cleanse himself and and his family and all of the sanctuary, both the inner courts and the outer courts and the, and the, the labor, he would, he would cleanse everything because the sin of the people made it uh, impossible for God to dwell there. So he would cleanse it so that God would dwell there. And he would also, remember the two goats, one of them would be used in part of that cleansing. The other one, the priest would set their hands upon it and as, as if it was the sins of the people. And the goat would carry the sins of the people out into the wilderness so that all things would be restored. So the, de- the, the year of Jubilee, this year of rest, this year of, of, of grand restoration back to the way that God wanted things done was based on a sacrifice that brought peace between God and man. Now turn to Luke chapter 4. Remember, the spirit of Yahweh is upon his Messiah. And we see Jesus coming, and he is tempted in the wilderness, and through the power of the spirit, um, overcomes and rebukes and sends Satan away. He is, begins his ministry and his baptism, and the spirit uh, sets upon him at his baptistry as that signal of the Lord's favor upon his work. And then he goes to Nazareth. In Luke, this is important. In Matthew, Mark, in the other Gospels, it is later on in the account. But remember, the Gospel writers take these different events and they shape them how they want to shape them to tell us the story of Jesus. So the very next thing that happens is he returns to Nazareth. Look at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up 
And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to... to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus takes the scroll of Isaiah, you can turn back to Isaiah 61, takes the scroll of Isaiah and gets all the way to chapter 61, reads the first two um, verse and a sentence of chapter 61, and then says, this is fulfilled in your hearing today. So the year of the Lord's favor is the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee requires the sacrifice of another to cleanse and to allow God's presence to rest. And Jesus, and then in Isaiah 61, we're seeing this given, talking about the work of the Messiah yet to come and what he will do through his fulfilling of this. And then in Luke chapter 4, he reads this and says, and this is fulfilled in your hearing today. So when we read Isaiah 61, if we are trapped in Jerusalem and the piece of dirt of the land of Jerusalem and only the Jews, we misunderstand Isaiah 61. Because Isaiah 61 is about Jesus. It's about the Messiah. Does it include the Jews? Yes. Does it include all the Gentiles from the the farthest reaches of the world? Yes. This is the work of the Messiah. And Jesus stops. Look back in Isaiah 61. If you look at the first line of of verse 2, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor, that's where he stops. The next line, and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, I don't want to make arguments from silence too strong, but he stops before the day of vengeance of our God. Now, that doesn't mean that his coming does not bring vengeance as well. Remember, when God rises up to act, he is doing both, right? How many times have we seen that in Isaiah? When he rises up to act, he is going to judge those who are unrepentant, and he's going to save those who are repentant. There's judgment and there's hope. There's judgment and there's blessing. So Jesus comes the first time in his ministry to seek and to save those who were lost. When he comes the second time, he is coming to consummate his kingdom, and final judgment will occur. So I think he stops there to draw attention to the fact of the promises that are fulfilled in his coming as he lives his perfect life and dies his perfect death and is raised again and seated at the right hand of the Father and not draw attention to the other side of the same coin of God working and that is his vengeance to destroy those who are his enemies. Both will happen, but his first coming is to seek and to save those who are lost Look back at Isaiah 61. We've seen this idea to preach the good news of Yahweh's favor and judgment. Now, now, now let me draw your attention to something here. This is the message of the Messiah. This is what the Father, the Messiah would say, has anointed me to do. But it's not only what he does. Everything that he promises is who he is. The Word of God is Jesus himself. 
Jesus is the one who comes to do this. Without his person and work, it doesn't happen. So it's not just God speaking and then, the, and then Jesus going to accomplish it and being obedient to the Father, which he does, but he accomplishes it in his person because he is the good news. He is the freedom that the captives need. He is the binding up that those who are brokenhearted need. The year of the Lord's favor is the presence of his son, the Messiah, who in his person accomplishes all of this. It's a beautiful picture of who Jesus is, but he's not only preaching the good news of Yahweh's favor and judgment, his testimony is that he will transform his people Look at to the third line of verse 2. To comfort all who mourn. Now that should bring us back to the very beginning of this whole section, right? Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people. Remember, Isaiah many times, several times uses that double command to show us, to draw our attention to something important. We're going to see that again in these chapters. Um, comfort, Comfort my people is chapter 40, verse 1. Now, that is the command. This is the fulfillment. He comes, Jesus does, to comfort in his proclamation and in his person all who mourn, spiritually who mourn over their sin, to grant to those who mourn in Zion. Now, remember, in Isaiah, Zion can refer to the Israelites in Jerusalem, but oftentimes it refers to all of God's people when he dwells with them. And that's what we have here. And you see that, I hope you saw that when it was read to you, that this is Jew and Gentile, the nations and Israel all together in these promises. And what does he come to grant to those who mourn in Zion, those who are mourning and repenting over their sin? To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Now we're starting this idea of reversal. We're going to see several times in this passage what we saw last week as well, instead of. Instead of, there's one thing that's a reality, Jesus comes to give something else instead of that reality. He intends to turn everything upside down and reverse all of it through his work. To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness, there's there's our, our understanding of joy. Oil of gladness instead of mourning. The mourning over our sin leads to the gladness of its forgiveness. The mourning and weeping over our sin leads to the restoration. We are to mourn over our sin. And the first time we mourn over our sin unto salvation, it's forgiven. And yet when we are believers, we still sin and we still mourn over that. And what does James tell us to do? To wait until the proper time that God sees fit to exalt us again. Not because of our mourning, but because of the work of Christ on our behalf. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise. That joyful proclamation of praise to our God instead of a faint spirit. Instead of weakness in our life, we are people of praise, of joyful praise. It is a strength of ours to be able to praise the Lord in the midst of chaos instead of have the faint spirit that we have. Luke mentioned this this morning. It's so wonderful when you can just go back and almost every Sunday pull something out of the Sunday school hour that he said that is perfect here. Sin makes you stupid. I mean, it just happens, right? You become weak in spirit. You don't have to how to make good decisions. In fact, the temptation that overcomes you when you sin causes you to let temptation overcome you again. You're weak in spirit. Your guard is down. But when we're living obediently to, to Jesus and what he said, and this is the way we started when we were saved, 
right? The moment you were saved, you were empowered to fight sin. The moment you were saved. And then as we live our life, what happens? Sin makes us stupid. Sin makes us forget what it means to fight. Sin makes us weak in the way that we live, weak in the way that we worship. Our praise is muffled and muted because we have this upside-down thinking that because we embrace sin, we don't have a right to go to God. And so we don't pray. We sing with uh, muted voices. When in reality, when we sin, where is the one place we must go? To the cross. And to remind ourselves that the work is finished. The work is done. So this is the joy that we need to remember. There is joy in our salvation. There is weakness when we sin. And even Isaiah is telling us that this is what the Messiah comes to do. That they may, the, the, toward the end of verse 3, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he might be glorified. So it's righteousness. This has been in our sight for the last couple of chapters, isn't it? This is the righteousness of God granted to his people. It's not our righteousness. And it comes through the Messiah. Now I want you to, to draw your attention to this use of, of headdress. Beautiful headdress. This, was, this word is only used in three places. Here, verse 10 of this chapter, and all the way back in chapter 3, verse 20. And I don't know if you remember back then, You've probably had babies since we've been in chapter 3. But all the way back then, remember, Israel was, was presented at one point, and all the imagery that's in Isaiah, Israel at one point was uh, described as a haughty woman, a group of haughty women who were dressed to the nines, and their heads were in the air, and they were flirtatious when they walked. And the very next section says God will remove all of their ornaments. He will remove everything about them that is their physical beauty because their physical beauty is covering up spiritual sin. And one of the things that he removes is the headdress. So he removes the physical things, the things that Israel were flaunting in their sin, trying to look beautiful in the physical world while they were hating God and not worshiping him correctly. God says he's going to take that away. Here, he gives it to them, but it's his glory as the beautiful headdress. It is, it is his person and his work through his Messiah that is the beautiful headdress. And that is given to them headdress instead of ashes. What is that picture in the Old Testament? Mourning and weeping, that repentance of sin, sackcloth and ashes would be mourning and weeping over anything. Sin, the death of someone else, a bad thing that happened in the world. So instead of the mourning over our sin, now that mourning has led to repentance, which has led to forgiveness. So now we have a beautiful headdress, the glory of God. And I say the glory of God because that is a word that is directly related Remember last week we learned two words that were being used in this section for glory. One had to do with the heaviness, the weightiness of the character of God, the denseness, the, the grandness of his glory. The other had to do with the beauty of his glory. This word headdress is a derivative of that same word, the beauty of the glory of God. So the headdress is God's glory. Remember, the light shines. What did we just learn in the last couple of chapters? The light shines on us and through us. When we are redeemed, the light of Christ shines on us to give us salvation and through us to let others see. All of that is wrapped up. This chapter takes so many themes in Isaiah and wraps them up in these sentences. There's no way to bring them all in one sermon. But I want you to connect with everything that we have learned. 
So the oaks of righteousness, it, this is that strength of righteousness that is the righteousness of God. It is the righteousness of God for his people that he brings, not that his people bring. But look at verse 4. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. So here we have this same language again of the ancient ruins, the, 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 all of the physical realities that happened because the people sinned and they were taken into captivity. And God is promising that he will bring a remnant back. Remember, we've already learned that through Cyrus. Cyrus gives the proclamation to set the captives free. They come back. They begin to rebuild the temple. But the temple never gets rebuilt to what it was until the second temple is built. And all of the things that we're going to see in these next few verses never happen physically. So we're still talking spiritual renovation. Spiritual renovation. This, in verse 4, is the spiritual establishment of the kingdom in all those who come to Christ. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, look at verse 5. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. Now, is that, what is that talking about? Does that mean that all of Israel's enemies are going to come now and be their servants? Well, we never see that happen. What this is talking about is how we both, Jew and Gentile, serve the Lord. Because we are now oaks of righteousness because of the work of Christ in us. And now we have a task. Christ has been anointed for a task. We, when we are saved, are set apart for God and for his glory to do what he says. And that's what's being described here. Strangers shall tend your flocks, foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. The work that you have to do will be done with the nations because all of you now are God's children. Now, this doesn't come into effect. People who are believing this in the Old Testament are looking forward to the day of Christ, right? They're saved by faith. They're saved by grace through faith, looking forward to the day of Christ, because that's where it comes. How do we know that? Jesus opened up the scroll and turned to this passage and said, today that is fulfilled. So when he comes, he comes to fulfill these promises and everything that comes after him, all the people that are brought into the church. I want you to think, I'm not going to have time to read it today, but I want you to think about Ephesians and the book of Ephesians in chapter 2 where Jew and Gentile are both spoken of together and they are now made one into one new man. That's the word that's used. And that's the church. Because Christ has come and broken down the dividing wall and provided the redemption so that all the people that come to Christ, both Jew and Gentile, those who were far off, those who were near, are now part of his kingdom. They are part of his family. They are the stones that he builds up in the walls. This is what is happening and alluded to here. Jew and Gentile coming together to do the work in the vineyard. Remember the vineyard picture in chapter 2 where the vineyard that God, or chapter 5, that God planted the vineyard. He came expecting fruit, but there was no fruit. So he took his action toward the vineyard. And how does he do that? He raises up his own vine dresser, Jesus Christ, to make sure that we are fruitful. And all of those who are connected to the vine, some of you are studying that right now, right? In John chapter 15, all of you who are connected to that vine, we're not the vine, but we are connected to the vine. We are producing the fruit. That's the imagery that's being used here. Look at verse 6. But you shall be called the priest of the Lord. They shall speak of you 
as the ministers of our God. Still this language, Old Testament language, Israel are the people of God, the nations are coming toward the people of God to the mountain. Chapter 2 tells us that. So this is still that same imagery being used. But he uses this idea of priest to the Lord, ministers of our God. Now the first thing we would think of is the Old Testament system, right? But remember that the Old Testament system that had priests in it was a picture of something else. First of all, it was a picture of the one priest who would come, the one who would offer himself as the perfect offering, the better offering, coming from a better priesthood. Remember all that we learned in the book of Hebrews? But that is because his people are now brought in to do that work. Exodus chapter 19, 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you see the, the strictures around this, obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to the people of Israel. So the people are to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, so that the world, the nations, come to the mountain, come to God himself. That will also be brought to us in a few minutes. But I want you to keep your finger in Isaiah and turn to, Isaiah, uh, to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2. Peter has just called his listeners to holiness. In six, chapter 1, verse 16, you shall be holy for I am holy. And he puts some flesh on that. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, so far, we're talking about New covenant believers who are living their lives as a sacrifice for the Lord. It's not saying that these people come and offer sacrifices in any temple. This is the spiritual reality of what it means to be a Christian. Verse 6, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So there's the promise of the Messiah from Isaiah 28. Verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, in Isaiah's language, those who don't repent of their sin and believe in the words of God of what he will accomplish through the Messiah, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, there are other places this idea is used, but think of what's being said here. There is a people who is being obedient to God, who are being made into a nation of a kingdom of priests because they're working and living according to the gospel. But there are also people who reject it, and they are stumbling over the stumbling block, which is Jesus Christ himself. 
They stumble at the end of verse 8 because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, wage war against your soul, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. So twice here, believers, the church, are called a royal priesthood, a kingdom that's being built, and they are the royal priests in it. And what is their role? To be obedient to Christ and to let their light shine to the nations and to live in such a way that the nations come to God. Now that is exactly the thing that Isaiah has been telling us, right? That's what God's people in the Old Testament were to do, but they failed. And when they failed, God said, I will, remember chapter 59? I looked around and there was no one. So I, by my own strong right arm, executed salvation. And his right arm is his son, the Messiah, the suffering servant. We'll turn back to Isaiah 51. I think things are in view for us, in focus for us now, that all these, these um, following pictures will make great sense. You shall eat, the middle of verse 6, you shall eat the wealth of the nations. Now that we've seen already three times in chapter 60 as a picture of unification of the nations and the Gentiles. And in their glory you shall boast. Glory is central at this. And the glory is God's glory at rising up the nations to come in repentance to him. Now we have more instead ofs here, verse 7. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. So physically, the shame of God judging his people and the nations railing against their God. Well, what's your God like? Look, your nation's in shambles. You've been taken into exile. But spiritually, the shame of your sin, the shame of separation, shame of separation from God, instead of shame, there shall be double portion, just like the blessings of the firstborn son from Deuteronomy chapter 21. Also, instead of dishonor, there shall they shall rejoice in their lot. There's the second time that we're shown that when we are in our salvation and living according to that scripture, we're rejoicing as we do it in, our, in the benefits that we have and that, that use of the land language, but it is what God has granted us. And God has granted us this joy inexplicable and full of, joy, full of glory. And Jesus says he came to give us that joy that's not like the joy of the world. Because it's settled in his sovereign hand and his work. Therefore, in their land, the middle of verse 7, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. The double portion. The double portion again is there before us. It's the, it's the sign of great blessing. And what it gives to us is joy. It, do you see what this is saying? It's not giving us escape from the troubles. It's not giving us the riches of the world. It's not giving us whatever we decide that we ask the slot machine in the sky to give us. It's giving us settled, complete, outflowing joy 
because we are now loved by the God of the universe whom we used to sin against, who we used to hate. But because of the work of his son, we've been united with his son. We've been restored to that fellowship. And now our lives should be marked with overflowing praise and overflowing joy for our father. And I'm telling you, the church today lacks this. My life lacks this. Maybe your life lacks this. I mean, how many Christians do you hear going around just moaning and complaining and saying, oh, it's the end of the world and I don't know what to do. It's the end. Well, of course. Anytime the world chases after their sin, they do stupid things. And so we are in the midst of that to be lights. That should bring us great joy. And if we die in the midst of it, our joy becomes a full-orbed reality, doesn't it? Because we're face-to-face with Jesus then. Well, our speaker changes in verse 8, reminds us of things that we already know. In verse 8, For I, Yahweh, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. Or maybe your, maybe your verse says, I hate robbery with a burnt offering. The, the words are very similar. It depends on what text, um, what, which uh, language text that your translators used. It's saying the same things. I, the Lord, love justice, but I hate robbery and iniquity or wrong. False worship if it's, if it's the, the burnt offering. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them. They are an offspring that Yahweh has blessed. Now, none of this is new to us. We have seen that Yahweh loves justice. One of the primary things he has against his people is they have lacked justice. But in his justice, he will forgive sin. Contemplate that. For I, Yahweh, love justice. Look at two lines later. I will faithfully give them their recompense. Now, recompense is going to be everything that a non-believer deserves. Judgment, separation from God, because their sin is not taken care of. But for believers, recompense is the righteousness of God. It's eternal salvation. It's all of our inheritance because of the work of Christ. And it's God's faithfulness that allows that. Think of what we learned when we were in 1 John. In 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and to do what? It's his faithfulness and his justice. That's the reason he forgives our sin. How does he do that? Because he doesn't just wink. It's not the Kmart special that we talk about all the time, is it? He sent his son. And his son, your sin was placed on his son if you were in Christ. The the wrath of God that was due you was placed upon his son, the Messiah. We learned all about that in Isaiah 53. And so it was justice. He has a people for himself that he is about the business of redeeming. And he does it faithfully and justly. There is no wrongdoing in what he does because he sent his son in our place. And I want you to notice in verse 9, the offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the people. These are the true children of Abraham because Christ comes as the promised seed of Abraham and all who are in Christ are the children of Abraham. 
according to Galatians 3. This is the Abrahamic promise in its fullness as the nations come. And notice how they come. They come because God's people are living in such a way that everybody sees they're different. Everybody sees the, the light of their God. Everybody sees the righteousness of their God because of the way they live. This is the way our joy comes to us. This is the way the joy comes to us. We aren't saved to sit on a pew someplace or sit in our home. We're saved so that we go out and live and preach the gospel. That just like the Savior comes to proclaim the gospel and then presents himself as the, the concrete um, giving of that gospel, himself and his life and his death, we are called to go proclaim that. We are to proclaim forgiveness to the, to the, of sins to the captives, to set them free, to bind up their broken hearts, all because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are priests of God, and we are known as that because we are obedient to his word. And when we're obedient to his word, we do things like this. We come to corporate worship not forsake the gathering of ourselves together. When we, when we are obedient to his word, we're pursuing holiness because he is holy. When we're obedient to his word, we're not putting our lamp under a bushel. We're not a believer, but nobody knows that we're a believer because we never say anything or live in such a way that separates us from the wacky world doing stupid things because of their sin. So this is our... You want joy in your Christian life? Get on the gospel in your life. Preach it and live it and apply it. This is what Luke is trying to teach you to do, and he has for, what, probably five, six months now and has a few months to go. He wants you to apply the gospel to your life. And when you apply the gospel to your life, guess what's happened? The world around you sees the light of Christ. And that's all that's being told here. The nations will see it and come. And Yahweh says, this is my way because I love justice well, the speaker switches again in verse 10. In verse 10, the, I think it's the Messiah speaking. So I've said the Messiah testifies with rejoicing and exaltation in Yahweh for empowering his work. Now, there's disagreement on this. When you read verses 10 and 11, you may think, well, this just sounds like Isaiah speaking on behalf of the people. The people are the ones who have been saved, and this is the praise that has been talked about that they will give. And it very easily could be that. But I think because of the connection with chapter 62 that this is the Messiah singing. Either way, it's a roadmap for us. If Jesus responds to him being used by Yahweh for salvation with this kind of praise, how should we respond to Jesus <clears throat> for receiving his salvation? in the same way that the Son responds to the Father. So either way, if it's Isaiah speaking for his people or if it's uh, the Messiah speaking uh, to Yahweh about what Yahweh has accomplished, it gives us the same message. Look at verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. Literally, it's rejoicing, I will rejoice. This is the way the Hebrew, uh, so what, the greatly is, is meant to capture that. Rejoicing, I will rejoice. My life is marked by rejoicing, so what am I going to do? I'm going to rejoice. At all times, in all places, I'm going to rejoice. I will greatly rejoice in Yahweh. My soul shall exult in my God. So, so his, the, the soul of the Messiah is exulting, not exalting, A-L-T, but exalting, worshiping, being full of his glory in my God. For, here's why, he has clothed me with the garments of righteousness, or the garments of salvation, 
Now, earlier in chapter 59, in verse 17, we found out that the Father gave the Son a helmet of salvation and righteousness as a breastplate. So this fits within this section that it's Yahweh speaking. Yahweh has been clothed with the, has clothed his, his servant with the garments of salvation. And his servant says, I'm, I'm rejoicing always because he has done that. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Now those are just pictures of, of what we know earthly-wise, the most beautiful things that we could think of. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as the garden causes what is sown to, be, to sprout up, so using as, as, as a metaphor for us, when you plant things, there are things that could grow out of that. So... Adonai Yahweh will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. So this is the Messiah rejoicing in what Yahweh has done and promises to do through him. And if we think of this, well, if this is the way Jesus responds in worship to his father, doing what his father commanded him to do, and what does he do all the way through his life? He does what the father says to do. He obeys his father. He does nothing unless his father tells him to do. On the face of the earth, when he is the incarnate God-man, he is obeying. He is living out that righteous obedience that he expects from us. And he's doing it for a purpose. So that his righteous obedience is credited to our account when we put our faith and trust in him. Now think of this as your song in verse 10. Look back at verse 10 and think of this as your song. Because I've been saved, I will greatly rejoice in Yahweh. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of righteousness, and he has covered me with the robe of, self, of, with the robe of righteousness. I'm sorry. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. It reminds us of that language that's used in the epistles, doesn't it? That we have been clothed with the armor of God, Paul says in Ephesians 6. And it's used other places that we're to put off our old self and put on our new. So it fits with us because this is what God has done in Christ. As a bridegroom decks himself out like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with pearls. I want to exhibit your beauty, Father and Jesus. I want to exhibit your beauty through my life as I live. For just as, just as the, the, it's clear that when we plant things in the ground, you bring them to sprout up, you will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. You've done it in my life. Now, Lord, use me to draw others from the nations to you because of the way you shine through me. Now, this is the message of Isaiah. That's, we can trace all these themes that go in through the New Testament as well. But Isaiah says... This is what God will do in his Messiah. And what's the first thing that we see? It's all God's work. There's nothing left up to us. There's no tag that says, oh, by the way, if your effort isn't great enough, this isn't going to happen. There's no tag that, that gives you any responsibility other than to repent of your sins and trust in Christ. And when you do that, these blessings are yours. And it should bring the joy in our life that will that God will use to change the world. Did you know that January 16th was, is considered the most depressing day in the, in the calendar? Did you know that? I don't know what research it was. I, I didn't even have the courage to go look. But January 16th 
is the most depressing day. It is in the middle of winter in a lot of places without sun. We're talking about in the United States here. And a lot of places without sun, so people with seasonal affect disorder are very much affected. It's just about the time New Year's resolutions take a crash and burn. And so people get all uh, upset and depression sets in. And when you read, Luke would have you break up into groups now and critique the, the psychologist approach to this. But we know what the approach to this is. Most of us would agree with that. Most of us would agree that January, one of the things we loved about moving to Arkansas is this time of lack of sun was very short compared to where we lived in Illinois. It was one of the great things about it. But still in the midst of this, if you're one of those people that are affected by that, that you need that sunshine, you start to feel it. So what is the antidote? Sit under a sun lamp? Maybe, but what is the true antidote? Live in the glory and the joy of your salvation and realize that even that blocked sun is caused by God to draw you closer to himself so that you trust him more for your joy instead of anything in the world like sunshine that you would say, if I don't have sunshine, I don't have joy. Right? If we'd switch that back around and say, no, I rejoice because I've been clothed with the garments of salvation and my Savior did that by living and dying for me. And so what else do I have to do except rejoice? Now, sometimes we have to retool things, don't we? Sometimes we have to kind of reboot. We need the repair shop. We have gone through the repair shop in the most glorious way when we're saved. But then we live life and sin makes us stupid. And so we start doing things and we need to reset. We need a year of jubilee. We need to remind ourselves what Christ accomplished in his atonement for us. And so we have to reset. I read more statistics. Statistics come up all the time when you're searching for sermon illustrations. But this one proves true to me. I can, I can feel this in my own life. Maybe you can too. That in, in the work world, all the studies show that people spend 22 to 25 minutes a day trying to fix computer-related issues. Can you relate to that? That costs companies an average of $4,000 a minute because the employees aren't doing what they want. And what is the easiest fix most of the time? Reboot. So I'm not saying this is the easiest fix. I'm saying this is the biblically demanded refix. You go back to the truths of the gospel and you remember what Christ did on your behalf and that he will not lose anyone for whom he died and that repentance is what believers do not to be saved, but to lay prostrate and humble before our God so he exalts us in the work of Christ. And one of the ways we do that is to come before the Lord's table. It's a sort of reboot, isn't it? We're reminding ourselves that Jesus came and he lived a perfect life, voluntarily died the perfect death, was raised again, and because, remember John 17 tells us that, that, that the Son asked the Father to glorify him because he has finished his work, Finish the work that God has given him to accomplish. Well, right here, we have the work that God gave him to accomplish, and it is finished. So we need to sometimes go back and remind ourselves that he did die. He did raise again, and he is coming again. And that, in effect, reboots us away from the stinking, thinking lies that we can sometimes get because we're remembering what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That's what we remember. That he lived and he died on our behalf and we truly spiritually feed on those realities. We feed on the fact that our sins are forgiven. Therefore, we walk in this world with joy. Therefore, we don't have to walk under the burden of sin because he's taken that on. Therefore, we can repent of our sin. Maybe you need to reboot a relationship here in your family. Or maybe you need to reboot a relationship with a friend. This is the time to do it. We're coming to the gospel and remembering Christ accomplished Isaiah 61 on our behalf. So I want you to just take a moment and contemplate the sacrifice of Christ for you. And what business do you have to do with the Lord today? Maybe asking him to remind you of the joy that you're supposed to have. Maybe asking him to remind you that the sin that you're pursuing will provide you no satisfaction, but he brings you all joy. I want you to just take a moment and silently pray, and then we're going to sing, and then we're going to share communion together.